Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. On August 9, 1974, Richard Nixon became the first and only U.S. president to resign from office. Nixon had been hounded by scandal ever since he was linked to the Watergate break-in by Washington Post reporters Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. Their story relied heavily on information from an anonymous source known only as Deep Throat. And for 33 years, the identity of this individual who brought down the president was one of history's greatest mysteries. United States of America, 1972, election year. With a booming economy at his back, President Richard Nixon's re-election chances appear promising. His opponent, George McGovern, is widely regarded to be too extreme in his leftist views. And coming off a decade of hippie counterculture, the American people seek a mainstream president to lead them into a new era. But despite the favorable election forecast, Nixon wants assurance. As the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War continues to divide the country, the president and his key advisors deem a more forceful campaign to be necessary. And so they devise a plan, beginning the chain of events that would eventually lead to one of the most recognizable scandals of American political history, Watergate. Washington, D.C., June 17, 1972, sometime after midnight. Men working for Nixon's committee to re-elect the president break into the Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate complex, equipped with sophisticated tools of espionage. In an attempt to bug phones and steal copies of secret campaign documents, they carry lockpicks, door jimmies, pin-sized tear gas guns, radios, cameras, and stacks of $100 bills. While the break-in makes front-page news, Nixon's involvement is not yet suspected. A few weeks after the incident, Nixon swears that his White House staff had no affiliation or knowledge of the botched heist, and the public believes him. In November 1972, President Nixon wins re-election by the largest popular vote margin of any post-World War II president, earning over 60% of votes. But Nixon won't have long to revel in his victory. During this tumultuous week of the U.S. midterm elections, what could be a better time than to revisit that Republican Party crisis bringing down then-President Nixon, Watergate, which is the subject of the upcoming dramatic series, The White House Plumbers, and on the show, starring as notorious Watergate participant Frank Sturgis, along with Woody Harrelson, is let's just say that veteran villain on screen, Kim Coates. The actor best known for Sons of Anarchy talks about as well his current starring role in what might be termed a feminist fatale noir, Double Down South, a descent into southern gothic murky depths of illegal off-the-grid pool hall gambling, and with a surprise twist as racist terror rears its head. First, some scenes from Double Down South, then Kim Coates, followed by writer-director Tom Schulman. Folks say this is the Kino capital of the world. Welcome to Nick. You come to shoot pool? And come to adopt a puppy. So, I'll bring you here. My truck. <laughs> she has an attitude. I just don't like telling total strangers my life story. You want something to drink? I'm good. Doing better than that. I did hear if you want to get good at Kino, this is the place. Kino is all finesse. Well, you're a fast learner, girlie. I'll give you that. This establishment could use an attraction. We'll back you. I feel remiss if I didn't warn you about the man you're dealing with here. Nick ain't got no reason to hurt you. He probably won't. Let's go big. Oh, I can go big. Big bragging rights. Hello, how are you? And welcome to our show. Yeah, thanks for having me. What got you inspired to go for this villain? that you portray in the movie. Who says I'm a villain? Who said that? <laughs> <laughs> it's like my, my mother always says, who are you killing this one? How, how many people die in this one, honey? Um, 
You know, a funny story, honestly, when I was doing White House Plumbers last year in uh, Washington and upstate New York for five months, I got sent the script by Tom Shulman. Tommy's one of my best buddies in the world, and obviously he's won an Oscar. He's, he's a man of repute, repute, and he knows how to write, and he flat out wrote this movie, uh, which I didn't even know was for me, and he sent it to me back in May of last year and said, have a look. Well, I didn't have a look at all. I was so busy on White House Plumbers. I thought, well, he's got buddies giving him notes. He's all right. He's all right. Five months go by. Six months go by. Last November, my people, my managers go, so I, I'm sure you know this, but Tommy's offered you his next movie, uh, the, the lead of his next film. And I went, wait, is that the one that he sent me six months ago that I didn't read? So I had a, a really quick read, and you know, I had some questions, and I called him right away in the morning, and I had some concerns, and he dealt with them beautifully. And I, uh, I haven't, you know, I, I like to take pride that I, my parts are, are pretty different each one. I, I like to find something that's completely different about each one. And this guy, yeah, I'd never quite played such a, a bit of a dark human being than, than this guy, and maybe ever. And what were your concerns? Well, I remember when I read it, I said to Tom the next morning, I said, I, I don't, I can't, I don't, I can't play this guy. And Tommy said, Tommy said, why? And I said, I told him, I thought it was just too much on one side of the railroad tracks. It wasn't enough uh, on both. Yeah. Uh, there was a, uh, an inner burning fire in this character that was just um, a little too, not one noted, but I said to him, how did you come up with this guy? And he told me the story. And in telling me the story of running into this guy when he was like 16, 15, 16, 17, based on some truths, he said, you know, he was kind of funny and tough and somewhat sexy. And I stopped him right there and I said, well, where, where's the sexy and the funny in this script? <laughs> and so he, he literally took him, you know, a minute and a half, maybe a week, and he feathered some things in that, that made me want to play the guy. Now, in contrast to your many adversaries in movies, this time it's a woman, a kind of feminist fatale. What can you say about that different experience? Yeah, Lily Simmons, uh, she, she's just absolutely amazing in this movie. And it's, uh, she, you know, she steps into a man's world, right? Full of misogyny, full of you know, racism, full of toughness, full of you know, the South and the 90s. We all know about that. So she steps into this world with vim and vigor and ready to go. And she wants to play this game called Kino. And she's a hell of a pool player already. I'm kind of shocked when I run into her. I'm kind of shocked that she wants to stay. I put her underneath my, my, um, underneath my wing. And what happens in the movie is, is kind of uh, stunning and, and scary. And uh, it's a world that... Yeah, she walks just right into in, in the mid-90s, and, and here she goes. Mm. And speaking of villains, what can you say about being drawn to becoming part of the White House Plumbers? Yeah, White House Plumbers, um, based on, it's all true, obviously. Uh, yeah. HBO spent a lot of time and money on it. David Mandel directed it and co-wrote it. and um, It was five months with Woody Harrelson and Justin Theroux and Lena Headey and Yul Vasquez and Toby Haas, just an incredible cast. I play Frank Sturgis. So my hair is completely, you know, dyed black like Frank's was. And we all play real people. And it's never been told the Waterhouse break-in from the robber's perspective, from the idiot's perspective. And we do that with this story. And uh, I can't wait for, it to wait for it to come out. I do, I've, I've heard that I think it's kind of like a January, February opening on HBO. So I'm oh. looking forward to that. And what intrigued you about portraying Frank Sturgis and getting into figuring out this complicated character accused of trying to poison Fidel Castro, being part of the assassination of Kennedy, and collaborating with the CIA in the Bay of Pigs invasion? Not to mention, of wow, course... Wow, look at you. You've done your research, girl. You know what you're talking about. Yeah, not to mention, of course, the Watergate break-in. How did you get inside his head and figure him out? Well, it was hard. I mean, you know, he's got this books written about him, like you just said. One's called The Warrior. And um, I, I just soaked it all up. And there was so many, there's so many live tapings of him when he talked uh, in the 70s there. And so I would, I would, in the 80s, and big smoker and big, big tough guy, obviously, and got along really, really well with 
with the Cubans and then Fidel Castro kind of screwed him around. And uh, he was, he was interesting to play, but you know, when you, when you get to watch real tape on the real guy, how he sat, how he talked and how he probably thought in these books and stuff that were said about him uh, and the writers who, who wrote White House Plumbers were full of knowledge as well. So we were all, we were all looking like the guys trying to be the guys and, it was fun to do like a documentary movie miniseries like that based on truth. It was just so fun to inhabit Frank's, I mean, the shoes, they all killed our feet. We were wearing these, these loafers from, from the, you know, the early seventies and the, the costumes were real. Everything was real. It was, uh, it was amazing. It was an amazing time. It was really hot though. I've got to tell you, we filmed it in the summer, late spring, summer, early fall in upstate New York and beautiful part of the world. That whole, Poughkeepsie, Beacon, Woodstock, but it was freaking hot and all that wool. Ah, and being part of the White House plumbers, has it given you any insight into the historical implications of that event? Well, you know, come on. We've been talking about that event and probably <laughs> will we'll be talking about that event until we don't talk about it anymore, right? So I really don't think anything new came out of it in a way. At the same time, uh, all the stories and all the behind the scenes and all the research, for me as an actor that just uh, got to inhabit a real guy and work with Woody and Justin, and it, it was it was it was terrific. We we still had little nuggets that we found out stuff pretty much every day on set. It was it was a really it was a history lesson, and I've I've been a history major in college before I discovered drama, so I love history, and I um, I enjoyed that project a lot. I can't wait for the world to see it. And how was it a different experience for you portraying Macbeth and Stanley Kowalski on stage in A Streetcar Named Desire, as opposed to, say, Sons of Anarchy? Well, that's that's where I came from, the theater, <laughs> right? I, mean, yeah. I, was, I was the youngest Macbeth ever at, at Stratford. I was 28 years old, and John Neville directed me, and then right to Broadway, and took over for Aidan Quinn on, on, at Circle in the Square on Broadway for screaming Stella for three or four months. That was amazing. And then Hollywood discovered me and the rest is history. I did go back to the States though. I did Jerusalem, the big play that Mark Rylance opened in 2011 or 10, 11, something like that. I did Jerusalem in Toronto and we won every, not that it's about this at all, but we won every Canadian Tony we could for that show. We were like eight for eight, nine for nine. My daughter got to do a Brenna Coates with me. She played Tanya. I played Rooster, went to Wilshire County to study that accent five times over a year to got to meet the town where the real rooster came from when Jez Butterworth was writing about him. So to go back to stage was pretty amazing for me. I'm not sure I'll do it again. It almost killed me, but uh, <laughs> yes, stage, TV, film, it's all a bit different for sure. What do you mean it almost killed you? <laughs> well, physically it was, it, it's, uh, I can't read, I can't write, but I can drive a tractor. And he's, the drug-infused, crazy woodsman lives in the forest, hangs around with these teenagers. Um, he, he's, he's protecting his land, and he's yelling and screaming and laughing. And it's a very painful take on this, uh, this, this guy who lives in the cops out in the woods. And a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful play. It won every award that you could. And in fact, uh, Mark Rowlands just redid it again. I saw him do it in London like four months ago, so I'm glad I got a chance to see him do it. Ah, and any last word to share about Double Down South without giving too much away? Yeah, Double Down South is a really, it's a cool story. It's a very, very intriguing written script. Uh, it's a story that Tom Shulman wanted to write during COVID, and he did, and he filmed it, and we filmed it during COVID, and we were safe, and we were doing it the right way, and we shot it in Georgia, and Madison, Georgia, and South Carolina. Um, my house, my plantation that my character lives in and runs a business through has its own character in a way. It's spooky. It's riddled with misogyny and, and, and some racism and man's world and a kino world and a billiards world. And this woman comes in and changes the entire lands landscape uh, for herself in a way that when people watch this movie, they're not going to believe it. They're not going to believe how it how it unfolds, really. It's yeah, amazing. it kind of seems to be one movie, a sports movie, and then it sort of turns into a film noir. <laughs> well, that's right. And you know, darling, these, these independent films, the only way they're seen, right, is at film festivals where people can 
pack it in and talk about it and Q&A and then sell it, hopefully. Maybe go to theaters down the road. But, yeah, these these the Newport Film Festival at Double Down South, we're, we're pretty excited to be able to show the world for the first time. Oh, yeah. Uh, this movie that Tommy wrote and directed. I'm, I'm really excited. Yeah, and one final question. When Kim Coates looks in the mirror, what does he see? A big nose. Just a really <laughs> big nose. I'm looking at me right now, just a really big honking nose. Now, you know, like... Look at this face, man. I don't know. I'm pretty lucky to have these blue eyes and high cheekbones. And <laughs> I guess I play a lot of tough boys, but I love comedy, darling. I really do. I really love comedy. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Kim Coates, for calling for into time. our yeah for calling into our show. I will get the word out. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Bye. And now, Double Down South filmmaker Tom Schulman revisiting as well his first screenplay the Oscar winner, Dead Poets Society, and he shares memories of the film's star, the late legend, Robin Williams. Why do you need this so bad? I got cleaned out. Aim to win some big stakes. You don't often get a second chance in this life. I need you to tell me the truth. You cheated who? There's something underneath that board, right there. Well, well, well. You want another bite? I came to break you this time. I need to know that you will hustle. Once word gets out that that's what we're doing, I'm all used up. You in a hurry to get somewhere? I'm in no hurry to stay here. I thought you and me was partners! You have no idea what I'll do to you. Double the stakes? I can't. He'll kill me. If you lose, I'll get it all. Game on. I'm the best keynote player alive. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How about you? Okay. Hello and welcome to our show. Thank you. Is Double Down South autobiographical in any way? And as a Southerner yourself, originally from Nashville? Yes, I am originally from Nashville and it is autobiographical in a way. Uh, I spent too much of my youth in pool halls. <laughs> and there was a pool hall in Nashville I used to go to when I was about, I think, starting around 12 or 13 called 20th Century Pool Hall, and it was an upstairs dive. And the uh, owners of the pool hall were three men named Nick. There was old Nick, middle Nick, and young Nick. And that sort of always stuck with me. And they were, they were young Nick was probably 30. It's hard to know when you're that young yourself. It's hard to guess ages. But, but, and he was a nice enough guy. He at least tolerated the kids. But middle Nick and old Nick were just hated the fact that we were there even I guess we were they were making money off of us so they they put up with us so but it always stuck with me and occasionally we'd get up the nerve to ask them if they were related and just scowl at us and tell us if we asked again they would do horrible things to us so uh and in the corner of that pool hall in the back was uh, they played a game called Kino where they would put a thin board on about a quarter of the table one end of the table and that board had holes drilled in it, and there was a double hole, and there was a little ramp off that came up off the felt of the board onto the keno board. And if you, on the if on the break you made a double, you got a ball in the double hole, you won double the bet, and you got to shoot again. Mm. And it was a fascinating game because it was apparently that game was I think it it started in the early 1900s and lasted about 100 years. It was banned in a number of states because it was such a intense gambling game and uh and you could because of the double hole you could lose a lot of money you know the first time i played i i put a my put my dollar on the table and was waiting and finally it was my turn and the guy who who had won before uh okay you owe me two dollars <laughs> okay well in terms of autobiographical what about the portrayal of southerners in the movie yeah, I mean, it, it, it syncs up with my experience of growing up in the South and, and, and unfortunately my experience of what it's like going back there to visit now. I still go back to Nashville a lot and, and uh, certainly the South has improved, but, you know, the uh, first day of first grade, I was approached by someone who said, are you a Yankee or Confederate? <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't know. And I said, Confederate because it came second, and the guy next to kid next to me said Yankee because he didn't know either, and the guy the other started beating him up, you know. So I, it's 
like and that was 19 you know in the 50s so it you know south was still fighting the civil war 100 years later and unfortunately in many ways still is so yes now though the film at first seems to be somewhat of a sports movie Without giving too much away, it appears progressively more to be a down-south film noir, and with the original title changed from Southern Gothic. What can you say about all that? That it seems to switch more into a a kind of Southern film noir. Yeah. I mean, I think it is from the start. The setting is very noirish. You know, it's in a rundown plantation home out in the middle of nowhere in the rural south. You know, the owner of the place played by Kim Coates, is, is, you know, an entrepreneur, but he's also a dangerous guy. Mm. And into that world comes this woman with an agenda. And what led you to choose a woman as the center of this story? Well, as I was saying in my long-winded version of the (laughs) first question, there was a woman, a girl that came into that pool hall and played Kino every now and then. And she was a sort of a stone-cold killer in a way. You know, she Mm. won a lot very dangerous place to come into, particularly her age. Uh, and she was probably in her mid-20s. And, uh, you know, I was always fascinated by her. You know, the, us kids would, would crowd around down there hoping for a glance from her, which we never got. But, but uh, she, that, she stuck with me and her, her courage and her ability stuck with me. And I sort of always wanted to write something about her. And then one day it dawned on me what, what I wanted to write. And what can you say about, on another note, what can you say about the significance for you in your creative life of your first feature film, and for which you won an Academy Award, Dead Poets Society? Yeah. I mean, it it was also autobiographical, probably more so than this movie yeah. for me, uh, because you know the, the, I, I grew up in a setting similar to that. So uh, <laughs> going to, a, to a, a, a private school while at the same time, playing pool every afternoon, but um, they would have been very unhappy had they known that. Um, but yeah, that, that you know, for me was a, a, a sort of wonderful way to, to start, you know, my, my career as a writer and later as a director. And looking back on Dead Poets Society, do you react differently when you see it today as opposed to back then? I haven't seen it in quite a while, so, uh, you know, I mean, my, my sense... I mean, I'm, I'm a, a writer and therefore a kind of compulsive rewriter, so I'm seeing the problems, the flaws, the things I wish I had done better, you know, the, the lines I wish I could improve. So it's, it's really hard for me to watch my own work after a while. So uh, I'm afraid if I saw it now, I, I, I'd go home and try to figure out how to, how to rewrite it. And what are your memories of Robin Williams? Did you interact with him on the set at all? I did. He was just a wonderful guy. I mean, you know, he, he was so generous and uh, really kind and uh, easy to work with. You know, he was he was there and completely devoted to, to, to making the movie work. And, you know, I mean, obviously most of his work was with Peter Weir, but but he was they were both open to my suggestions. And it was just a, a great experience. And, you know, you couldn't. A, a, a better experience on your first movie than Robin Williams. And are you working on anything next? I am. Um, uh, Callie Curry, uh, T-Bone Burnett, and Trey Crowder and I are working on a, um, a podcast, actually. Mm. And any last word on Double Down South and how it reflects your experience and vision of the world of the South in this country? Well, unfortunately, it still reflects some of the misogyny and racism, you know, of the South. And of course, that's not specific to just the South. But but having grown up there and sort of been frustrated by the pace of change, you know, I wanted to. It, it felt necessary to me to highlight that. Um, but you know, I think the film is 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 hopeful in that respect. Mm. Could you elaborate more on that? What you mean by hopeful? Well, I think I think it tries to to reflect the the possibility of of real change, you know, within the context of of a story about gambling. So, um, but you know, I think if you see it, you'll you'll see what I mean. I don't want to give too much away. <laughs> yes, yeah, easy to give a lot of things away about that in any discussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but I think that that the the way the you know the the sort of arc of the movie is is hopeful in that respect, you know, 
particularly, you know, by the time it's over. And by the way, the co-host mentioned by Schumann of his next project, Callie Corey, like Schumann's first screenplay endeavor at Dead Poets Society, penned this first film herself. Okay, then, listen. Let's not get caught. What are you talking about? Let's keep going. What do you mean? Go! You sure? Yeah. Callie Corey, and I'm here on Arts Express. Thank you so much for having me. Thelma and Louise have been my first script. I'm very happy that it managed to find its place in the lexicon and still holds a relevance for women. There was no way to forecast any of what happened, which was great. And next in the Arts Express screening room, a double feature marking two holidays around this time of year. First, with Veterans Day this week, a look at war movies and why one may ask does, according to Francois Truffaut, quote, every film about war ends up being pro-war and never anti-government as the real villain that sends youth into those horrors to die or to be maimed and damaged there. Here's Lies of Heroism, Redefining the Anti-War Film, an excerpted introductory analysis presented by Like Stories of Old. Here is a glorious beginning for your lives. The field of honor calls you. Personal ambition must be thrown aside in the one great sacrifice for our country. think of many film-related subjects that come with as much complexity as that of the cinematic depiction of war. Between the contradictory statements of famous directors, like Truffaut saying that every film about war ends up being pro-war, and Spielberg claiming that every war film, good or bad, is anti-war, there appears to be a lot of ambiguity about what it is that war films actually communicate. Definitions of what it really means to make an anti-war film therefore also remain vague and inconclusive. In an article from the BBC, California State University professor of philosophy Dennis Rodemol said that anti-war films must at least portray a nuanced view of deadly combat. One that depicts the infliction of lethal violence as a norm of behavior, and as a force striking down randomly. In the same article, New York University film professor Cheryl Antonio said that they have to show both sides. They have to ask if war is just a national tragedy for the victor, or if it is terrible for everybody. If we threw away these rifles and these uniforms, you could be my brother. There are plenty of war films that meet these criteria, but for many of them they are not enough to definitively label them as anti-war. In fact, many of them are heavily debated for having the exact opposite effect, like American Sniper, or even some classics like Saving Private Ryan or Full Metal Jacket. Good night, ladies! One complicating factor is that making a film with certain intentions doesn't mean it will be perceived accordingly. Apocalypse Now, for example, is a slow-burning journey into a heart of darkness that comments on the dehumanizing effects of war, but also contains some isolated scenes, 
most notably the Ride of the Valkyries, that communicate the excitement of warfare so effectively that the larger context it is placed in is easily forgotten. While such misinterpretation is bound to happen as filmmakers can never fully control the reactions to their work, nor can they account for every specific worldview that is projected onto it, they can definitely model their own message by not thoroughly considering the effect their images really have. Just look at, as the channel Every Frame a Painting pointed out, how Michael Bay filmed the devastating attack on Pearl Harbor with the same cinematic spectacle that is also seen in fictional blockbuster adventures, and that he himself would later use to create exciting action scenes in the Transformer films, and to tell another real-life war story in 13 hours. To illustrate Pearl Harbor with a similar moment in the film Midway, in which the point of view remains with the Americans under attack, and not the spectacle. Well, mostly. A better example is Dunkirk, in which the point of view is so restricted that the danger becomes a constantly ominous presence, and the spectacle terrifying. The Russian film Come and See takes this even further by presenting a fully subjective experience from the point of view of a young boy. This implies, among other things, that we not only hear the sounds he hears in the world around him, but also the sounds that are haunting his mind, thereby connecting us even closer to the traumatic effects war has on the human psyche. However, despite the amount of care and consideration that is given to the depiction of warfare, another complicating factor is that the audience is, and will always be, observing it from a safe and comfortable distance. And so, however realistic the feeling, however profound our catharsis at the end, the experience is always a simulated one. It is never the same as going through the real thing. Though this is a question that can be brought up in the general context of our consumption of stories. When it comes to something as impactful as war, it is fair to question how and to what extent this matters. These are but a few of many issues that illustrate our complex relation to war films, and by extension, to war itself. So what does all this mean for the anti-war film? Let's deconstruct humanity at its most destructive. Examine what the narrative, cinematic and contextual elements of war films communicate to us, how they reflect and shape our perception of war, and explore the purpose and meaning of witnessing the darkness of warfare through cinema. For in the words of novelist Thomas Hardy, if a way to the better there be, it exacts a full look at the worst. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with our second screening room holiday double feature, The Politics of Thanksgiving, Eat the Rich. Writer-director Niven Wilson's excerpted animated poem about food, power, and the starving masses turning up at Downey Street to feast on then-Prime Minister Boris Johnson's pot roast. I was hungry, and it was getting late, as I became desperate. So a threshold's opening jaws looked like an inviting entrance. I took the opportunity before the gates could close, but it felt like I had been swallowed. A monolith extended from the bare horizon. Maybe I could find something inside that could be eaten. As the sun faded, the palace was awakened, presenting sheer wealth free from earthly limitations. It was overwhelming to pass under such majesty until I was startled by a sudden shriek. And my path was obstructed by the ragged man before me. 
screaming about economics, turning people into monsters who destroy themselves for profit, he urged me not to go onwards. I considered his outrageous claims and decided to proceed ahead. He was obviously insane. I pushed past him, but then he said, You are what you eat. I'm not sure why this odd statement disturbed my mind, but it echoed through my empty stomach as I left him behind, repeating, You are what you eat, until I went inside. Entering the mansion, I was surrounded by a shadowy assembly, foolishly intruding on their private dinner party. But they didn't throw me out, barely noticing my admission. So my only introduction to them was that insane man's description. He explained that each guest represented a different aspect of business and his voice whispered to me, characterizing their professions. First was the philanthropist, with generosity and surplus, caring for the upper class's less fortunate servants. But he profits by keeping your prospects in grasp, so he cultivates dependence with the gift of his scraps. The twin politicians were always campaigning, pursuing their electoral careers instead of trying to change things. You can choose between the two political parties, but they are the same with two heads from one body. Next was the lobbyist who invests society controlling government puppets with legal bribery. With no strings to stop him as his investments grow and his influence spreads right under your nose. The advertiser sells a smile on the surface. For your pleasure, he prescribes a more expensive purchase restraining your mind with commercialized psychiatry and the therapy of a complete lobotomy. The banker will take advantage of trust in a crisis with assets to spare from his previous clients. But the convenience of the contract has a hidden price and you will be in his debt for the rest of your life. The broker recklessly trades stock without making a product and collects a fortune by cheating the market. Flying free from regulation as his net worth increases and when crashing, leaves you to pick up the pieces. Last was the news anchor reporting through mass media broadcast with journalism filtered through corporate finance. Imposing artificial limits on public debate, his sorcery keeps you uninformed and entertained. They were more horrifying than I had expected, but at least their underlying system was stable. Maybe they had enough food for me to be fed and space for an extra seat at their table. They seemed to be waiting for someone else to join them and as their festivities ended, he was summoned. A thin figure stood starving and naked the capitalist was hungry and impatient. All of his features were missing except for his lips and teeth. The others congregated in fear of his obscene purity. But the capitalist paid no attention to their submissive awe as he was drawn by instinct into the dining hall. 
the feast upon the gilded plates offered delectable mountains and goblets of temptation's taste conceived by eternal fountains with shrines to unrestricted blue nurturing opulence in flesh and at the end of greed's pursuits your host the heiress of golden success The guests took their established places, but for me, there didn't seem to be any space left. Before I could ask the heiress for something to eat, so each guest lifted his glass in celebration and emptied the bottle for the next generation, drinking until my presence was completely forgotten. They were focused on massacring their supper, and their aggressive gluttony encouraged my hunger. But as I watched them crush the banquet into a disgusting mass, I was reminded of the man outside's rant, repeating his warning with each bite of their teeth. You are what you eat. Talking and chewing on what to do with their power, the food in their open mouths was not all devoured. Too divided to compromise for the common good, each guest tried to fill himself with as much as he could. And as they competed over who could eat the most, they stuffed themselves but only felt more hollow. They hopelessly searched for more when they finished their shares, but they had already eaten everything that had been prepared. The heiress would provide for them and put an end to the shortage. So she went into the kitchen to check her private resources. Only the capitalist waited calmly for her to return while the other guests' impatience with their hunger only got worse. The party would end in chaos if they did not get more to eat. Then she finally rejoined us. But there was something that seemed amiss. Strangely, the heiress herself served their second course, which was distinctly different from the food that had come before. Filling their rising appetites, this cuisine's flavor overflowed, such that each guest took his next bite before the last had been swallowed. Although some of the meats formed an unsettling shape, as they chewed at what resembled muscles, guts, and brains. At least, that's what it looked like from what I could see. But then, with a sudden shiver, came the clear knowledge of what the meat I had seen might be. After finishing their plates, they looked for anything left undigested. Luckily, they still ignored my presence. The philanthropist thought if they each regurgitated a little, they could continue their feast without becoming uncivil. But the philanthropist had joined in on the rush to this impasse, and all of his sentiments came out of his ass. Yet his rhetoric had successfully achieved resolution because now the source of their next meal was an obvious conclusion. By savagely eating one of their fellow guests, they had abandoned proper table etiquette, no longer requiring social pretense they simply had to choose who would be slaughtered next. I found myself welcoming their unveiled violence, 
embracing their accelerating descent, eager to see the results of the elections awaiting the excessive professions. When you were dissatisfied with society's conditions, the politicians pacified with the illusion of decision. But someone had to write the laws to protect corporations, so the lobbyists oversaw democracy's privatization. But disempowerment provoked feelings of insecurity, so the advertiser resold trusted brands as personalities. But without sufficient income, there was no money to spend. So the banker lended enough to pay for merchandise with debt. But the interest rates that were owed could not be paid perpetually. So the broker traded the loans to make even more money. But exponential growth collapsed and economic crisis spread. So the news anchor blamed the crash completely on the governments. But without the politicians' facade, they could not continue the recession, creating more problems than they could solve with unaccountable oppression. With so many dismembered guests, I could take everything that was left, but there was still one remaining threat. The capitalist prevailed with hunger that was not yet appeased, persisting as the incarnation of blind and insensate greed. The heiress's provisions filled her guests with desire, and he was pleased to have had them all as an appetizer. Engorging his authority with their dissatisfaction, the capitalist appreciated the ingenuity of famine. Atop the pits of fear, the coiled tongue appears. Invited to its feast, you are eaten completely. Employed to persevere as mechanized teeth pierce. The wage of pain is earned. Your power is crushed and purged. Cast out to the abyss of the esophagus. Fallen further inwards, your self-reliance inverts. The stomach's vile acid drowns efforts to resist. Expenses must be paid. Your purpose burns with their flames. The accidents of ash inevitably pass. Pathetic saving strain. Your hope dissolves in gastric rain. Immortal underclass, impoverished and prolapsed. Struggling to just persist. Your morals relax their grip. Throughout intestine guts, the punishment corrupt. And all throughout the violent flux, this carcass was intentionally bleeding. Its heart's unsympathetic pulse, mechanical, but not beating. Only the fittest deserved to survive through dinner, and the capitalist had chewed off every extra finger. The drooling demon flooding society smiled upon the heiress and unleashed his depravity. His entire organism of insatiable ambition and free market hedonism, economic fetishism, hid his basic definition. For he was a capitalist and as such worshipped capital. To increase the wealth of the rich, he would even dine with cannibals. Thus, to money personified, he devoted his life to the heiress the capitalist sacrificed. Raw power 
had been revealed with all the others served. And for her final meal, she'd left you as dessert. Fed by serpent infrastructure, sprawling over generations, independence smothered under, ancestral accumulation, suffocated by compliance, desperate skeletal convulsions, symbiotic bindings tighten, all conjoined by cronyism, buttressing distended fortune, elevated by division, hatched upon the throne's contortions in the predatory kingdom. Without escape from the system, I was victim to her taste. But she thought you were not yet ripe and took you deeper inside. Within the darkness of her kitchen, I beheld abundant horror. Nourishing her unborn children, fostered swarming leftovers. People starved while this food decayed, decomposing in shallow graves. I united with rotting waste. And together we accepted fate. However, the heiress had already eaten so much that she might burst open. The treasure she tried to consume had stuffed her with food. So she had no heir expected. And to preserve her legacy, she needed us to inherit the economic hierarchy. But I decided to withdraw without even taking a crumb. And as I departed, I watched as, as she, she ate what she was. That's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.